This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day to you. Long time no talk. Have you been well, sir? I have been indeed. You know, it's that time of the year when we start to think about the gardens. I was once in New England with James Madison. We went on a kind of botanizing tour. We we took a vacation and went up to look at some Revolutionary War battlefields, and we wanted to study something called the Hessian fly, which was ravaging American wheat crops. But we also just sort of wanted to look around, and I wrote a letter back to my daughter Martha from Lake Champlain, and I said, no rational person would live in this climate. No person would live in a subarctic climate like New England. And if you're, if you're saying that where you live, it, it will be several degrees below zero, I wonder why anyone would choose to live there when there are so many temperate places to live in North America. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering that myself. When Lewis and Clark went north and turned left, I'm about there. So I'm about as far north as they got. And then, and then they went further west. They had a bitter, bitter winter at Fort Mandan in what's now... North Dakota, and they kept temperature uh, records, weather records, at my request. I'm a great believer in keeping this sort of uh, data and then finding ways to compare it. And so Lewis, uh, dutifully, as a young Jeffersonian, took down the temperature twice a day, and he wrote about the prevailing winds and whether there were any signs of precipitation and how much cloud cover there was and so on. And he said that one day uh, in December of 1804 at this Fort Mandan, it was 43 degrees below zero. And on, on another occasion, one of the journal keepers, a man named John Ordway, said that they were burning... Uh, lumber 24 hours a day in the greatest quantities and even the inside back of their chimneys in other words in the interior back of the chimney maintained its frost through that burning that's how cold it was outside Hmm. man you know you just mentioned that they were dutiful jeffersonians keeping record of things that's kind of the way you lived i talked yesterday to a woman who described herself as a jeffersonian i should mention this to you it was candy carson who is the wife of dr ben carson she has a book out called the doctor in the house she's a yale grad she's a musician she's a conservative christian she's the wife of the republican candidate and she described herself as a jeffersonian and i said why and she She said, well, Thomas Jefferson said that, uh, now I'm going to have to paraphrase her, the worst, the greatest sin we can commit is to leave a debt for our children to pay or something like that, that that was a a crime against humanity. Words to that effect. I presume you know what I'm talking about. I certainly felt that that was true with respect to our public treasury. You know, that I, I believe that a national debt is a national disgrace. I think that's the sense in which she must have been describing it. And I think that one generation has a moral duty to pay off its debt entirely and to leave its children and grandchildren entirely unencumbered with debt. And I even went so far in a letter to Mr. Madison from Paris to say that debts that aren't paid off by the generation that undertook them should be canceled automatically by natural law once per generation. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I I'm okay that, with that. <laughs> that must be what she has in mind because, as as you know, I died helplessly in debt in my personal life. And if that's the greatest sin that one can commit, I'm afraid that I'm in some trouble here. Yeah, well, sure, she was certainly talking about public debt. In fact, she said that, and I didn't do the math on this, but um, if this isn't perfectly true, it's true in principle. She said that if we retired our debt today at $10 million a day, 365 days a year, it would, at the rate we're spending, take us 5,000 years to be back to zero. $10 million a day, every day of the year, it would take 5,000 years to pay off the debt we have. So we're kind of behind the eight ball right now. Well, if you follow my advice that the earth belongs to the living, and one generation is about 19 or 20 years, and she's talking about 5,000 years. Yeah. That would be a form of economic tyranny over the future. And I was worried about our children and grandchildren. But if, if she's accurate, this is our grandchildren 10 times down the line that you've indebted. So shame on you. But, you know, I want to say I'm heartened that an African-American would regard me as a hero. Yeah. I would think that some black Americans of your time would have a hard time thinking well of me because I was, of course, myself a slaveholder. I broached that subject with her, and it wasn't the reason we were talking. She more wanted to, on the night of her husband's debate in, in South Carolina, she wanted to talk, you know, politics in their particular lives. But I broached the subject, and she's, and you know what? Um, and, I, and I think it's because it's where she comes from politically. She had a hard scrabble life in Detroit. Her mom was a, uh, her father was a factory worker. Her mom was a laborer of some sort. But she ended up getting a scholarship to Yale, and she and her husband have made a life for themselves. And she said, what happened back in the day is what happened in the day. We need to be responsible, though, for our own condition now. That's a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap sort of sentiment that, that some people applaud and other people say, well, bully for you because you're smart. You know? I agree with her sentiment and her principle. You know, In Notes on the State of Virginia, my only book, I worried about this. And I, I said that eventually, of course, we would emancipate all of the slaves. That certainly was going to come to pass. Uh, justice would prevail. But I worried about the aftermath. And I said in my book, Notes on Virginia, that it was possible that there would be perpetual tension between the two races because the former slaves slaves, you know, people who come from a, a background of slavery might always resent the former masters. And, and so the, the black people might never get over being angry or bitter at those who had once enslaved them. And I, I worried that this could be a terrible legacy of the evil institution of slavery. And it sounds from her testimony, at least, as if she and her husband are attempting to avoid getting caught up in that yeah. bitterness. Forgiving is not the right word, but she sure had moved past it. In fact, it was weird because she and I were in different places. And I said, you know, it seems to me like the idea, as recent as slavery was, and certainly as recent as civil rights were most necessary, um, we're almost impatient with the amount of progress that we want to have made in America. That's an argument for continuing affirmative action programs, or at least understanding that black Americans, though, you know, 
fully vested in the political process now uh, aren't aren't equal partners yet. It, it 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 takes longer than a few generations for us to get past not just slavery but the Civil War era and hell for that matter the 1920s and 30s. You know that, that was not that long ago. I quite agree. You know, I I thought it would take many generations, perhaps hundreds of years to undo this damage, not just to to end the bitterness and the rancor and the mutual recriminations and the fear, but maybe hundreds of years before black people would be able to climb out of the the conditions of slavery, you know, illiteracy, ignorance. Uh, very uh, limited skill set, um, uh, a deference to white masters, uh, you know, a certain subservience of character that was not bred into the black population, but was inculcated from their earliest childhood. And so I, you know, I, as you perhaps know, I, I had doubts about whether the two races were equal, at least in my own time because of that legacy. And I thought it would take hundreds and hundreds of years before the African-American people would be able to reach their natural potential, having begun their experience in America in this degraded, enslaved situation. But let me talk about her husband for a moment and ask you a question. I've heard that her husband is a physician and that one of his views is that the pyramids were grain storage facilities. Can that be true? He's a pediatric neurosurgeon. You you can't imagine anybody with smarter credentials than that. And yes, that's what he said. Well, that wouldn't be a very smart thing to say. You know, we know that the, we know, we know, even in my time, we knew that the pyramids were not hollow, that that there's an elaborate structure inside the pyramids of of tombs and treasuries and so on, not all of which we understood in my time, but we were certainly aware that they weren't hollow. And so I don't know how any person pretending to public office uh, could ever make such a claim when the truth is ascertainable. This is not speculating on, on the rivulets of Mars or the clouds and the spot of Jupiter, this is this is a, a statement about something that any scientist can go measure. A tourist could figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so so there, I am, I'm surprised that someone apparently distinguished in his work and uh, with deep ambitions to serve his country would swallow so patently ridiculous as this and you know if you if you don't get something like that right then that may lead voters to wonder whether there are other areas that you are equally irrational about well now that you mention it that has not come without consequence for him president thomas jefferson in our previous podcast we spoke more politics we will in the next one and so i'll leave you with that here uh, science marches onward but maybe not as quickly as we always wish it's, it's in our interest to promote science and to make sure that our scientists are very well educated, especially in skepticism and, and critical thinking in the, the arts of, of Francis Bacon. And then once they have been educated and have, have proved themselves through peer review and so on, it's in our interest as a people to acquiesce in what they say. In other words, there should be no politics of science. If Dr. Franklin says that 80% of a fireplace goes up in smoke, 
we ought to accept that and not say we wish it were only 10%, and so we'll find scientists who can tell us that. 